From the hills of central New York and in the heart of the Finger Lakes, this is Frankly Speaking. My guest on this episode of Frankly Speaking was a role model for me from our shared experience at the University of Rhode Island. Emeritus Professor Peter Noden was born and raised near Philadelphia. He earned undergraduate and master's degrees in horticulture from Colorado State University and his Ph.D. in plant pathology from the University of Rhode Island in 1980 under the guidance of Professor Noel Jackson. He joined the University of Maryland faculty in 1980. Over the course of his career, Pete has received numerous honors for his contributions to turfgrass science and the golf industry. He was awarded the USGA Green Section's highest honor for the turfgrass science community in 2014, made a fellow of the American Society of Agronomy and Crop Science Society of America in 2007, and in the same year was recognized as an outstanding researcher by the Northeastern Weed Science Society. In 2012, he received the Colonel John Morley Distinguished Service Award from the Golf Course Superintendents Association of America, presented annually to an individual who have made an outstanding contribution to the advancement of the profession. Dr. Denoden retired from the University of Maryland in July 2013. We sat down recently to chat about his career, status of the industry, and long respect and admiration for golf course superintendents and his students. As with all our Frankly Speaking episodes, we are grateful to our partners at Dryject and Intelligro. Welcome to Frankly Speaking, Pete. I want to know how a guy comes from Philly and makes his way out to Colorado. And you were telling me that, boy, Penn State was good because everybody got in. So you knew you had that in your back pocket. But there was something else that took you west? Uh, that's right. It was just, I guess, some sort of spirit of adventure. Had I any appreciation for the distance at the time, I probably wouldn't have done it. We ended up lots of times driving back and forth, and it was a really long haul. But in retrospect, it's just about one of the best things that have ever happened because I really, really love Fort Collins and the, and the university. Well, and you went to work for really a legend in certainly Western turfgrass science in America, and a guy who died uh, entirely too young. What was it like working for Jackie Butler? I've had many chats with Dave Minner over the years about that. What was it like working for Jackie? Well, at the time I was an undergraduate at Colorado State, there was really no turf program. And I ended up getting drafted in 1970 and found my way back to Colorado in early 1974. And I was working on a sod farm. So I, I wasn't really going anywhere. So I applied to Colorado State for the Turfgrass Science Program, which uh, was only about two to three years old at the time I got there. And uh, Dr. Butler was absolutely just one of the most wonderful individuals you'd ever want to meet. He was just really kind and friendly. He was the kind of guy that would have you over to his house for dinner with his family. I remember when we had Turfgrass conferences, he would drive to Denver is about 70 miles, and he'd pick up all the speakers, bring them back, have them out to the house for dinner, and then take them to the hotel. Of course, the conference was on campus at that time. It was really, you know, kind of homey. It was uh, very unusual, somebody to be this absolutely, totally generous with his time. And he had all kinds of interests, Frank. He really loved turfgrass science and management. His program was divided. It was mostly field-oriented, but he did teach a couple classes, and I think he was probably 50% extension. I remember really distinctly, I'd, I'd go out to do the mowing, and he would do all the lapping of the mowers and repair the mowers and <laughs> repair irrigation systems and heads. He was a, kind of a jack-of-all-trade. But he wanted the students, you know, to get all the hands-on that we could get. And, and he smartly put you on a drought project well before it's time, before we worried about a little bit of water. This was just, hey, can you water efficiently out there? What kinds of grasses do we have? I mean, I think it's hard for many of our young listeners who know how to work podcasts, sort of what turf grass science was like back in the early 70s. I mean, Watson had got his degree in the 50s, so you're talking about you know, the very early years of studying turf grass science and the drought work, that was probably the same time Youngner was training Vic Jabot out there uh, in Southern California. So what was it like doing that drought work out in Colorado then with Jackie? Well, you know, I'd never been exposed to any kind of research before, and this was a real eye-opener, and this is something I really fell in love with, and I knew this was 
uh, what I wanted to pursue. But it was simple to do drought work at Colorado because it almost never rained in the summertime. <laughs> That's right. So we didn't have to have all these elaborate rain-out shelters. We did some greenhouse work, and the, the offshoot of that was is that things that happened in the field were oftentimes something that did not happen or even come close to happening in a greenhouse setting. He had these varieties. I think there was probably about 20 Kentucky bluegrass varieties that had been established out there for a couple of years. And all we did is we cut the box down and mowed them at two different heights and just evaluated the different cultivars for their ability to withstand drought. And then we tried, as I said, to take this to the greenhouse. But what I got more involved in was the influence of morphological characteristics Mm -hmm. as it relates to drought stress. And there wasn't a whole lot of variation, but I got to do things like count and measure stomates, and I had no idea how many stomates were on the top and bottom. (laughs) You know, I I worked with uh, Scogli uh, at Rhode Island counting tillers and and lengths of sheets. And so let's transition together where both of us got a part of our education. You then leave Colorado with your sort of love or beginning of your passion for the meticulousness of research. And you go to work with probably one of the more meticulous guys uh, in this business, Noel Jackson. So you, you get to Rhode Island uh, and you're studying with this Brit who, who I knew uh, much later than you did. And they said he had softened by the time I met him. And he yeah. still seemed like, a, a God rest his soul, a, a pretty hard-ass kind of guy. So you leave Jackie, who's a jovial sort of fella, and you get with Noel uh, how was that transition? And talk a little bit about the early days at Rhode Island. Well, yeah, it was really a, a very difficult transition because I had just got married and got a U-Haul and got a hitch for my car and pulled it across from Colorado up to Rhode Island there and had to stow my gear away for a couple of weeks so I found a place to to live and commute from there and between there and Philadelphia before class began. But the really strange thing is with Colorado State, it was a lot more freedom. You know, the graduate students had a graduate room and usually the advisors didn't come up to talk to you unless they needed you to go, you know, do something right away. But at Rhode Island, Noel didn't have an office. His desk was in the lab Mm -hmm. and my desk was next to his desk. (laughs) And it was my job to be there in the morning before he arrived and to be there when he left in the evening. (laughs) And I can still remember sitting there in the lab and I could hear him. He always whistled when he walked down the hallway and he'd walk in the door and every morning he would say, what's new and interesting, which, you know, kind of got on my nerves after a while. Well, and, and, you know, for people who don't know Noel, you know, he's whistling and his desk is next to you and he's just, he's a massive human. He was a big guy. He right, was he's intimidating a, a, in stature. And then he had this smart British accent that makes even the most rudest criticism sound charming in, in some ways. So uh, I'm sure you, you guys had some lively conversation at times. Oh, yeah. He was a towering man in intellect. And like you said, he had this wonderful, rich Yorkshire accent and an incredible sense of humor. Uh, Of course, when we were together at meetings, he was the guy in the room. He was the one that really just took control of everything. And he just had such a spectacular personality. But in the lab, no. Graduate students, he said, were like mushrooms. They should be kept in the dark and fed horse manure. <laughs> and he meant it. I mean, and there was no going to the library to do a, you know, a search for a term paper. There was no reason to be out of the lab unless you were going to class. It was kind of tough. But at the same time, now, while you're in the lab, one of the things that was probably a feature that Nathaniel continues to this day, and I know was a huge part of your career, was the diagnostics services that you provided. And, you know, people were bringing samples. I know when I went to school there in the 80s all the time, I'm sure that the samples were starting to come in even when you were there. Is that how you started to develop your interest in, in diagnosing issues like that, Pete? 
Well, yeah, I mean, Noel just, he was a phenomenal teacher, and he loved doing samples. We got, in the summertime, we would just get absolutely inundated with them. You know, guys would come in with these old greasy cardboard boxes loaded up with plugs from their greens, and we put them in all these stacking dishes and incubate them overnight, and then we'd try to do isolations. But he was hands-on. I had to sit next to him like a little kid in his knickers, and keep my mouth shut while he looked down the tubes of the microscope. And when he found something interesting, he would show me it and he would tell me all about it. So it was tough in one respect, but it was really invaluable experience. I mean, I really got to know the fungi and I got to know the morphology of plants. We had to know much more about, you know, anatomy and and certainly physiology. And it was all hands-on. There was just the microscope and a couple of guys and you know, an incubator and a refrigerator, and that's what we did most of the time. Well, and it's a change now, right? You were trying to figure out which end is up. You're in Colorado. You do some drought work. You learn the sort of basics of research like most graduate students do, and then you make this huge transition back to the East Coast, further east from where you're from, with this sort of hard-nosed plant pathologist from the early days, and now you're doing microbiology there's a little bit of plants, uh, quite a bit more microbiology. You didn't have any problem making that transition. Now, I want to wrap up this first segment, Pete, by talking a little bit about the people now that you've trained, right? I mean, I go through the list from Karen Cackley and Henry Wetzel's, uh, Mike Fedonza, John Kaminsky, Steve McDonald. It's a who's who of people who have influenced this business. What did you learn in your graduate career that you thought helped these people to really be the great professionals they are today? Frank, more than anything, it was just the hands-on approach to research that I learned you know, from Jack Butler in the field and from Noel Jackson in the laboratory. And I combined those two, and I would say that and uh, having the great fortune of having some really spectacular graduate students, we, we accomplished quite a bit, and uh, it, it was rewarding for them, and I think it was uh, even more so for myself. So would you say, if I asked those guys, would they describe you maybe the way you describe Noel? Yeah, I, they would probably say Pete was a hard ass. <laughs> Would they be right about that? They would be, yes, I think so. But, you know, I come to be trained that way, and I guess I expected that I learned from one of the greatest on how to, you know, knuckle under and and make sure people, you know, got to school on time and got to the farm and got things weighed out and sprayed out and ready to go. So before we go to the break, I just want you to wrap up by talking about those early days at Maryland when you get there. So did you leave Rhode Island and that first job, your only job was at the University of Maryland? Yes. Was it a new position or who had left there for you to come? Well, I was filling in. The original position was Jack Hall's, which Mm -hmm. was 50% research and 50% extension. That's the position I filled. But two new ones had been created at that time. One, Tom Turner, was 100% extension in soil science. And then we had a third person, uh, Dave Wainer, who eventually went on to the University of Illinois and then to California as the department chairman. His position was filled by Mark Carroll, who responsibility was was mostly for the um, undergraduate program. Right. And now you have, you've always had a successful, is it a two-year certificate program that Jeff Reinhardt is running now? That's right. Yeah, it's called the Institute of Applied Agriculture. Unlike the other two-year programs, it, I think it's time-wise much more demanding. It's a full 18-week semester, whereas, it, you know, at Rutgers and Penn State, the terms are considerably shorter probably. The name of the fella who ran the program before Jeff uh, escapes me, Pete. Kevin Mathias. Yes, uh, Kevin Mathias. What a legend he was there as well. He was there a long time, wasn't he? Yeah, he was a graduate student when I arrived, and he was teaching in the Institute and later got a Ph.D. there at Maryland in, in entomology. He really had a big program. It was much, much larger than the four-year program where we had maybe at the height, we had maybe 20 guys. He would have 60. He'd be have a full house. That's right. And then, you know, not long after that, the four-year program started to swell as well. And now they've shrunk again. 
Right. All the programs are shrinking, but I think the two-year programs and the certificate programs and the online programs are coming back in an even bigger way, especially for the changing career people who might have a degree somewhere else. They're really reinvigorating that kind of training that your former graduate student, John Kaminsky, is running at Penn State, for example. That's correct. Yes. Yeah, those programs are doing... They struggled. Uh, They went through a metamorphosis and... um, I think the Penn State program, since Don has arrived, he really bolstered that. Oh, yeah. And I think he had a big-time effort to bring in international students, which yeah. made it you know, a lot more desirable for everyone. So especially for someone who's a little older or maybe has a bachelor's degree and uh, they're sort of unhappy and think that turf's the way to go, that's definitely the smart avenue to, you know, you need that some kind of a certificate from an institution and, you know, one from Penn State, of course, carries a lot of weight in the industry. Well, not as much to some than others, no. but we'll end right. on that, Pete. And yeah. let's end this. Not, not as much as Rhode Island or Cornell <laughs> or Maryland. <laughs> so listen, uh, I'll be right back with uh, my conversation with Peter Noden. This Frank Rossi, Frankly Speaking, brought to you by Dryject and our partners at Intelligro. We'll be right back. Golf course superintendents all agree. Traditional core aeration is time-consuming, labor-intensive, and unpopular with golfers. Dryject is a revolutionary service that relieves compaction, increases water infiltration, improves gas exchange, and amends your root zone all at the same time, leaving the turf surface smooth and immediately playable. Best of all, an independent Dryject service professional does it for you, there and gone before you know it. Dryject the only process in the world that aerates, top dresses, and amends in one pass. Visit dryject.com to locate your nearest Dryject service center. Finally, a fungicide that's so much more. Civitas Turf Defense is a fungicide, insecticide, and plant protection product that will change the way you look at turf management. Civitas Turf Defense works within the plant to control diseases and pests, reducing requirements for fertilizers and other pesticides. By enhancing stress tolerance, Civitas Turf Defense can reduce water inputs by up to 25% while maintaining acceptable turf quality. Civitas also increases abiotic stress tolerance for improved tolerance to wear in traffic. And with no known resistance issues, there's no worry about maximum yearly application restrictions. Civitas Turf Defense, plant protection redefined. There's more to the story. Visit CivitasTurf.com. Welcome back to Frankly Speaking, Pete. We left our conversation about sort of the broader, high-level conversation about, you know, life in your shoes as a student and then an advisor and a teacher. I want to talk a little bit about the disciplines that you've worked in. We did talk about your drought work in Colorado and your pathology work with Noel, and then you get to the Mid-Atlantic in a place where it's really hard to grow any one grass really well all the time where you guys are. That's a mix of warm season and cool season, and for sure— the cool season grasses, it's a soup of pathology problems from foliar to root issues. And looking back in preparation for this, Pete, I, I want to start with something just to get your ideas on it because it's current now. You know, back in the day, you did a paper on red thread and fertility and basically showed that, you know, you could grow out of it, you know, after a month or so if you put some nitrogen to it. And so henceforth, Red thread has been thought, at least I stored it in my mind, and I'm sure Noel taught it to me like that, that it was a disease of low fertility. If you know, if you had red thread, you just had to grow a little bit and you'd grow out of it, put some nitrogen on it and you'll be fine. Well, I think recently the combination of this enormously wet weather must be slowing growth down because guys are putting nitrogen on and even spraying fungicides and red thread starting to kill grass, Pete. Are you surprised to see red thread still a persistent problem? And do you think it's just that the plant's not growing? Could it be something else? Oh, definitely. It can be a very severe foliar blighter. You hit on it. The reason why a little bit of nitrogen was so helpful in the past is it basically it got you over the hump of a couple weeks when in the spring in particular when you would expect there to be a, you know, overcast rainy 
weather, which is the trigger for red thread disease. Well, last year, I mean the entire year, and now this year, we're seeing not only record amount of, of rainfall, but we have even more larger numbers of days of overcast weather. And so it's the absence of sunshine and the drying and warming power of the sun that is really keeping, you know, that fungus going a lot longer than we expect it to go. So, no, in, in this, this weather pattern has been uh, remarkably conducive for not only red thread, but oh. and I've seen it in tall fescue lawns, very severe, dollar spot, brown patch, and pythium blight. Yeah. Now, listen, before we wander into the organisms themselves, I want to bring in another part of some of the work that you've done. And I think it's related to cultivar resistance. I get the sense that breeders really have never bred for red thread uh, resistance because it's always been considered a minor issue. But now, you know, we're starting to see the prevalence of a lot more, for example, dollar spot resistant bent grasses, ones that seem to be able to resist dollar spot at very high levels. You know, you were playing around with this, you know, sort of many years ago. Have you started to see that maybe some of the resistance that we've been developing in some grasses might be breaking down, or is the resistance, some of the resistance you're seeing, improving? Well, one of the definitions of resistance is the difference between the time one cultivar can interpose its defense mechanisms. And some, the ones that are so-called resistant, do it much more quickly than the so-called susceptible ones. But we did a, a really great dollar spot study not that many years ago, seven or eight years ago, where we looked at, I think, five or six bentgrass cultivars. It's under fairway height. And we had, the, we had the Crenshaws, which were highly susceptible. We had the standard like Pencross. We had the 007 and Providence, a few others. And what we learned from this, which I don't think anybody really ever recognized before, but is that in the susceptible cultivars, the epidemic begins earlier in the season and it takes off. In other words, the epidemic just skyrockets in a very short period of time. And eventually it goes through a series of plateaus and dips throughout the entire season. I mean, all the way up into Maryland, we're talking into November. So traditionally Memorial Day, but it can happen in April, seen dollar spot in April. Whereas in the so-called resistant cultivars, the epidemic took a couple, maybe a week or two more to to appear, and then it was much slower in developing. But in the final analysis, Frank, all the cultivars in our trial were severely damaged by dollar spot in the absence of fungicide use. So if we let them go long enough, even the so-called resistant cultivars became severely damaged. And so now, this is so great because now we have, and you played around with it with Mike Fidanza and Brown Patch. Now we have the Smith Kearns model. There was a Rothwell model in advance of that. But now we have these risk models uh, that are becoming more uh, prominently used uh, in the industry where, you know, you're looking at temperature and relative humidity over a certain period of time. And, you know, when the risk gets to 20%, you generally have to apply a fungicide or some protection. And exactly what you're describing about, you know, how long it takes the resistant varieties to get it is what the models are revealing. Like resistant varieties now probably don't have to be treated until the Smith-Kearns model gets to 40%, right? So that the risk is that much greater. But I think what a lot of what we're trying to do and realize, even in IPM, is that you have to spray preventatively for some of these problems you know your plants are going to have. And in fact, when you don't, is it really harder to get them recovered? I thought I saw you do a paper that showed if you kept spraying Primo when you have dollar spot damage, it makes it harder to recover. Did I recall that right, Pete? I don't recall doing that kind of work with Primo. I know that uh, the trimmets of the world really had good activity in reducing dollar spot, but I can't recall the specifics of that study right now. But you like the idea of controlling the dollar spot preventatively before it starts to come on, or are you okay with it invading a little bit? 
It depends on where you are. It's, you know, I, I spent 33 years over there in College Park, and since I moved here to Lower Slower Delaware, I mean, I've, <laughs> you know, I've sort of, you know, have this different perspective. And over here, the golf courses are much lower managed. Not as much money is put into them. Mm-hmm. And, you know, there's a lot of common Bermuda grass and also, another factor here is it's all sandy, and we, we get some breezy weather all the time. Mm-hmm. And I think it's that wind movement, more than anything, that results in, in less, generally less damage. I see less damage on golf courses over here where you would think it would even be worse when compared to, say, the Baltimore-D.C. corridor. Mm-hmm. Basically, over there is, you know, there's so much competition that, you know, among a lot of the higher-end golf courses, they, a superintendent can't use as an excuse that I didn't have enough money to treat that disease problem. <laughs> and so that rolls into it as well. Yeah, when I hear you talk about the breezy weather down in lower, slower Delaware, so we're going to get in a lot of trouble for this. Uh, in lower, slower Delaware, the next organism I think about that you study was summer patch, and you were doing some of the early work there, you know, Peter Lanscoot had done work with Noel back in the day when it was going from Gaumonomyces to Magnaporthy. And so now you have summer patch. And I got to tell you, Peter, I thought we had this problem licked when the strobal urines came to the market. It was Primo seemed to be helping. But I got to tell you, I consistently see more and more turf struggling with patch diseases in general, root diseases in general, but specifically summer patch. You've done a lot of work with summer patch. Number one, do you think my observations are correct that it's still sort of a major problem or is it just uh, an exception that maybe there's a few, a little breakthrough every once in a while? I I really haven't seen that that explosion you're describing, and I always did feel as though it was the use of the strobiliarins that were responsible for reducing that disease as such a destructive one in the Mid-Atlantic. And certainly, it's it's had positive effects on anthracnose. We used to see annual bluegrass greens had to be treated with methyl bromide that would get anthracnose so bad, and you don't see that anymore. But the work we did with Summer Patch, of course, Dick Smiley worked out the etiology, the causal agent of that. And what we focused on was the influence of cultural practices and also weather conditions. Karen Cackley's PhD had a lot to do with soil matrix potentials and temperatures and this, that, and the other. But I had another grad student, an MS student, who worked on the impact of mowing height and irrigation. And one of the things he picked up on, he says, well, you know, what we did was we had, you know, worst case scenario, you know, water heavily at two o'clock in the afternoon versus, you know, water deeply but infrequently, uh, you know, at night, Mm -hmm. at dawn, something like that. Mm -hmm. And we took soil, or he took soil temperatures. And when we we were just starting this thing out, he said, you know, I just put the water on, it all had to be done manually. But he says, and I'm, I'm watching the temperature, and he says, what do you think the temperature does? I said, well, let's see that water coming out of there. It's probably about 55 degrees. I say the temperature's going down. He says, no, it goes up. It goes up, it goes up two or three degrees Fahrenheit within an hour of irrigating on a sunny day. Hmm. And that was, I, I won't use the word correlate, but that was heavily associated with the severity of the disease. So that's when we keyed on the idea that the wetter the soil the more severe summer patch would be, and that, you know, was the case. And, of course, that jived well with golf greens because they wanted to keep things on the dry side anyway. But that was one of the really first interesting things that we came up with on summer patch disease. And it was after that work that the preventative applications and the soil temperatures for fungicide drenches came about, right? That's where, right after that, we started to develop the spring drenches at 65 degrees at two inches, you know, that sort of thing. That's correct. And also, we were getting the uh, sterile inhibitor fungicides there in the early 1980s. I think Bailaton was the first one on the market, and then Banner came, and then five or six others down the line. But we started seeing much more activity in managing summer pests, say, compared to the old Benamel Tercy in 1991, which was the standard right. of the day. And then we got into trying to figure out why that was so, because when the fungicide hits the plant, it goes mostly up. 
Very little of it goes down. Certainly none of it goes from the leaves to the stems to the roots. So what we sort of figured out is that with using the correct water volumes up around you know, two and a half, three, with 150 gallons per acre, we got better control because we were getting the fungicide down around the stem, around the crown, and the protection was coming not to the existing roots, but the new roots that were being produced. They would carry more of the load of the fungicide that otherwise would have never gotten to the old existing root system. All right, listen, Pete, I want to wrap up this section now with just one more little chat about predictive models. They're coming into vogue. You did this many years ago with Mike Fidanza. Why didn't these models catch on? You know, you did the work. I mean, I've had my own experience with doing something and then it sits around for 10 years uh, you obviously thought it enough to do it. How come you thought they never caught on until now they seem to be catching on? Well, they could be notoriously unreliable. <laughs> Fidanza got his to about 80%, but he had like seven factors in his favorability index. <laughs> you know, air temperature, soil temperature, solar, that sort of thing. And the big thing, I think, that somebody's doing any modeling has to consider is, is wind. And if you're doing your research in a field that's surrounded by trees, it's certainly not going to be applicable to something that's, you know, higher and exposed. Mm. So the problem with models is that they're usually done in one spot. And there's too many microenvironmental differences in niches. Mm-hmm. So for that reason, they can be pretty un- unpredictable at times, but I always liked them because they were a heads up, mm-hmm. you know, they were a tool. Mm-hmm. It got people thinking about, oh, my day temperature's here and it's, we're going to have thunderstorms there. This is all part of the scenario. And I think they overall help the person who becomes a student that understands, you know, the model of superintendent is going to take the time and Rather than look at a, you know, a printout, he's going to actually be thinking about the, the key factors that drive the model. Peter Noden, down in Lower Slower, Delaware. And I'm Frank Rossi. This is Frankly Speaking, brought to you by our partners at DryJack and Intelligrow. We'll be right back. Finally, a fungicide that's so much more. Civitas Turf Defense is a fungicide, insecticide, and plant protection product that will change the way you look at turf management. Civitas Turf Defense works within the plant to control diseases and pests, reducing requirements for fertilizers and other pesticides. By enhancing stress tolerance, Civitas Turf Defense can reduce water inputs by up to 25% while maintaining acceptable turf quality. Civitas also increases abiotic stress tolerance for improved tolerance to wear and traffic. And with no known resistance issues, there's no worry about maximum yearly application restrictions. Civitas Turf Defense, plant protection redefined. There's more to the story. Visit CivitasTurf.com. Golf course superintendents all agree. Traditional core aeration is time-consuming, labor-intensive, and unpopular with golfers. Dryject is a revolutionary service that relieves compaction, increases water infiltration, improves gas exchange, and amends your root zone all at the same time leaving the turf surface smooth and immediately playable. Best of all, an independent Dryject service professional does it for you, there and gone before you know it. Dryject, the only process in the world that aerates, top dresses, and amends in one pass. Visit dryject.com to locate your nearest Dryject service center. Welcome back, Pete. We have really started to drill in, and I'm not going to let you just talk about microbes because you've done such great work with different grasses and weeds uh, later on. But I can't have a conversation with you without talking to you about bent grass in the mid-Atlantic in the early days when the golf boom, they were building golf courses like crazy, the A's and G's and a lot of bent grasses had just come out. The ability to cut them low that Joe Deutsch and the breeders were were giving us, and especially collars in particular, uh, you were noticing a fair amount of damage that we still notice uh, today. Then you went on and wrote a book. I actually sat through your seminar back in the day at the Golf Industry Show. Uh, I think actually it was when you were having a hard time (laughs) 
sleeping because your jokes were just as good as I ever remembered them. So can you talk a little bit about what the heck was going on with Bentgrass and why you decided to write that book? Yeah, when I, when I got to at Maryland, you know, we had basically ryegrass from wall to wall, and the greens were a mixed bent poa on average. And it was widely held as a truism at that time that I guess we had bentgrass teas in some clubs, but you really, we couldn't have bentgrass fairways because Warren Bidwell at Congressional failed, and he was considered the best of the best. Mm. And the reason he failed when we look back on it was because of the equipment. Remember those old 12-gang heavy <laughs> real mowers? That's what they were trying to mow bentgrass fairways with. And it wasn't until the triplex came down the pike. And I remember the first time I saw a triplex mowing a fairway, and I went, holy smokes, this is the golden age. <laughs> I mean, with these guys getting the money to triplex fairways, it was just unheard of. And it was the equipment, and the lighter, more efficient equipment is what made it all possible. But it's an indication, too, right, Pete, that... Early on, would you say creeping bent grass was a traffic-tolerant grass? No. Well, it was just a whole total change in being able to manage it properly with, for example, irrigation systems. They used to have single rows. You know, now they have double and triple rows. And, you know, now they have all kinds of airification equipment. They have all kinds of equipment for top-dressing fairways. So it was the, the technology that changed everything that made it possible. Did the new varieties coming into the mid-Atlantic have problems with the heat? Yeah, the heat and diseases. You know, they brought Crenshaw, which I guess was the 90s. That was supposed to be the be-all and end-all. Well, it, when they got it up into the mid-Atlantic, it just, the dollar spot just destroyed it. Their fungicide budgets were just doubling and tripling. Hmm. Uh, just because of one disease in, in that cultivar. And then, of course, greens, they've got the high-density cultivars. The A's and G's were the start. But for the fairways, you know, I always felt, but, and this is before the concept of top-dressing fairways, you know, that the old style, the pen crosses and the provenances of the world were probably best suited because they, they did have more wear tolerance. And but they, now and that they weren't so aggressive. Well, pen cross is aggressive. Right. And now they have 007 fairways, which you couldn't have without top dressing. Otherwise, it gets super puffy. That's one thing I did in my book. I tried to define terms like puffy and grain and all these obscure phrases people use. But, yeah, I mean, there's just these, these high-density cultivars could never be grown on large numbers of acres 20 years ago. And so now we're turning our mowers on pieces of fence that we lay on the collar. Have you seen this trick? Oh, yeah, that's been around for some time. They used to use carpeting, too. Yeah, yeah. So I don't know if you followed this, but lately, something that you identified many years ago as collar decline. Right. Bill Kreiser at the University of Nebraska now and his growth regulator work has started to identify that because that collar is growing more slowly than the greens, and we're typically now applying growth regulators based on growing degree days and how they are metabolized in the plant. He's got pretty good evidence that we're over-regulating over time uh, those bent grass collars, making them more susceptible to the abrasiveness of turning uh, and, and then leading to the decline. Right. Does that make sense to you? Yeah, absolutely. The The two biggest things is when you mow a green, you mow in straight lines, but when you mow collars, even when you walk mow them, I mean, you're going to walk in a serpentine pattern, so there's a lot of torque. Also, the, the leaf blades on a collar are much wider, and they're much more susceptible to damage from top dressing as well as from mowers. But top dressing, sand is a major killer of collars in the summertime, and you just go on at almost any golf course, even if they're not top dressing the collars, you can see the, the collars next to the bunkers are always the worst in worst shape. And I remember our late friend, I know he was close with you, Stan Zontek, uh, wrote that article many years ago that ryegrass was better than no grass. That's um, right. <laughs> <laughs> and and most, uh, most golfers wouldn't know the difference between a ryegrass collar and a bentgrass collar. Did you, did you, do you still see many ryegrass collars, or was that just a shot? Uh, 
you know, uh, flash in the pan. Well, they still put a lot of bank, uh, ryegrass in the collars in the mid-Atlantic, I think, at least between Philadelphia and Washington. All right. So listen, we talked about bent grass as one of the grasses that you spent some time studying, but you also ventured into weed science. Why? Why? Why would a pathologist? It's not like you had didn't have enough to do, Pete. What? What's the deal, man? Well, as like Noel Jackson used to say, weed scientists are overpaid and underworked. Because <laughs> uh, <laughs> he knew uh, Johnny Jackshits, who was out spearfishing half the time. Yeah, he had he had something to say about everything. But uh, <laughs> uh, actually, I came in through the back door, Frank. I when I came to Maryland, uh, our research farm had been neglected. It was probably. 90% crabgrass cover at the time, and clover and dandelions. And I had this uh, representative from the old Diamond Shamrock Company. Hmm. And, of course, they had Dacanil, a fungicide. And uh, I'd gotten to know this guy when I was a grad student at Rhode Island, so he came to visit me in Maryland. He says, well, we're out at the forest. He says, well, you got all this crabgrass here. Why don't you try some herbicides? And they had things like Dacamine. Mm-hmm. Dacanate 6, which was DSMA, and yeah. Daxol, which was a pre-emergence herbicide. So, and, and plus he had, like, more money. <laughs> <laughs> he had more money for the herbicide work than the fungicide work. <laughs> and I thought, well, you know, a fungicide, you may have to apply it six or seven times or more. And these, you only had to apply once or twice. So, so. that's what Noel meant. That's yeah. what Noel meant. They're overpaid. <laughs> yeah, they're over. Underworked and overpaid because they didn't have the treatments. They didn't have that, you know, constant seven, 14 day interval concept. Right. So now you're working in weeds. And of course, you know, you did your fair amount of uh, chemical efficacy work. But I want to bring your weed work back to your work with grasses. In particular, you did some really great cultural work with tall fescue. And you've done some really interesting work with the fine fescues. And I want to talk about that, Pete, because this is a huge thing coming back now into turf is low input. How do we do less? How do we do less? And, you know, I did a fair amount of reduced input stuff and had people sneer at me uh, in my career. And it looks like you've done a fair amount of, hey, how do you do this and not need the herbicide? Let's start with your tall fescue work. What did you find with your mowing height and irrigation work looking at tall fescue? You think you can remember that study? Well, yeah, that one was a good one. It was the focus was on crabgrass in that study, as I recall, and mm-hmm. I think we were mowing the plots at one and a half, two and a half, and three and a half inches, something like that. Mm-hmm. And within a year, we were mowing at one and a half. Crabgrass had gotten into the plots, and it was objectionable. By year two, it got into the intermediate mowing height, and in year three, there was still no crabgrass under the high mowing. Mm-hmm. So we'd gone three years, no crabgrass under high mowing, and uh, certainly unacceptable levels under the two lower mowing heights. As far as irrigation is concerned, well, they say tall fescue is more drought tolerant. Well, indirectly, it's got a deeper root system, so we can scavenge more water. But uh, you know, studies done, like Jack Fry out in Kansas, shows it actually uses more water. Mm-hmm. So what I find interesting about tall fescue is now I'm starting to see it in more and more surrounds and rough areas on golf courses further north than I used to see it. It wasn't uncommon to see it in Philly and certainly down where you were. But, you know, now I'm seeing it in Chicago. I'm seeing it in Milwaukee. I'm seeing it in the Hudson Valley, in New England. This has got to be a function of the warming climate because it's something you wouldn't have probably recommended years ago. No, it, in New England in particular, tall fescue was a weed. You know, it's something that, it was a forage. And that's the way people thought about it for decades. And even in Maryland, people didn't want to accept it for what it was until, you know, Reed Funk started turning out some of these finer texture cultivars. Right. It was then that we realized we've got to get out of Kentucky bluegrass Summer Patch is just destroying everything, lawns, fairways, athletic fields. Tall fescue was a logical way to go. It does require less nitrogen. You don't have to irrigate it as frequently. It had at that time very few disease problems to speak of. But as tall fescues evolved, they got finer and denser. Yep. 
And it was that change in the canopy morphology that really uh, contributed more than anything to to the increased disease problems in tall fescue. In particular, brown patch. Today. In particular, brown patch. Brown patch has always been its Achilles heel, but man, pithing blight. Whoever thought of pithing blight in tall fescue? Well, and, and I think the word was on the street that Bruce Clark lost half his lawn to gray leaf spot. That's right. It's now recognized as an incredibly important disease in sod production mm. here in the mid-Atlantic. Nobody was aware of it. I mean, I was just doing some, since I came to the shore here, I just started visiting some of these sod farms, and I said, Jesus, look at this gray leaf spot out here. <laughs> and it was doing a lot of damage. And now, yeah, this, it can move. It's the potential is if we're to go right into lawns, and that would be a big disaster. So listen, the last bunch of fescues you worked with were the fine fescues, and that right. was a way of lowering inputs. And, you know, when I think about fine fescues, I think about them as low-input grasses for sure. But when you hear the golf commentators on TV talking about fescue, they think they're talking about high grass that you don't do anything to. I want to talk to you about your work with the fine fescues and low input. And also, I think you looked at it for quality and weed suppression, if I'm correct, Peter. Do you remember those fine fescue trials? Oh, I'll never forget them. i tell you how it started. I was at a cemetery, visiting a cemetery hmm. of all places, and he had this grassy area. And there was this perfectly circular, dark green clone about 10 feet in diameter. It was beautiful, and it had no weeds. And I took a close look. I said, damn, that isn't a, that's a fine fescue. And, of course, fine fescues are really common up in New England, up your neck of the woods. And I was really familiar with them. I mean, they actually used them. Colonial bent fescue mixes were commonplace in Rhode Island lawns back in the 70s and 60s. So anyway, I make this, this revelation, and what I did is I got a, a hard fescue, a sheep fescue, a creeping red, a chewings, and tall fescue. I planted them out in a big research study, and some of them got routine mowing, and some of the plots didn't get mowed until after the seed heads became necrotic, and some were just not mowed until the wintertime. And so what came out of that is that this superior grass, bar none, was the hard fescue and the sheeps. I don't think you can buy sheeps, but the hard fescue was just way beyond all the other species in terms of just not only quality, but fewer diseases, fewer weed problems were associated with it. And so that's, I guess we did that back in the 90s, and it, and it just kind of continued on. We kept doing new studies, and we kept seeing the same thing over and over again. And I'd wander off and look at the NTEP fine fescue trials, and you'd look out, and all the best ones were the hard fescues. Do you think, you know, we've done some work here at Cornell looking at the allelopathy. Do you think it had to do with potential allelopathic properties, or does fine fescue morphologically just, if it keeps the weed out from the beginning and doesn't thin, it looks like it's a hard mat to establish into. Is that why you thought they've stayed weed-free? Yeah, well, the allelopathy, you know, they, all the fescues have some. Some have more than others. It's kind of, we did, we actually measured that once, and I can't remember. It was a little mixed bag, you know. Yeah. So it was hard to attribute to one thing. But what we found out with the fescue is that it still at some point had to be mowed. So it was not no maintenance. Mm -hmm. It was less maintenance. And Stan's on tech started pushing this in the mid-Atlantic, back in the 90s. Mm. And we learned right away that you don't want any of these grasses wherever the ball is going to fly. That's... So it has to be out-of-the-way out of places, places where it's unusual for somebody to hit a ball, but still there's a lot of acreages there. Yeah. And, you know, slopes, stream banks, all these areas were converted by a lot of people on and, of course, the first couple of years, the seed heads were beautiful. And as they mature, you know, you don't get as many seed heads. Yeah. But they have to be mowed. And there, it was expensive. And it had to What those who really pursued it found that they, they would weed whack. They do it in the wintertime. Yeah. But it was, you know, they saved a lot of money on the front end, but they made up for it in the winter when they had to not only cut it back, but they had to, like, haul a lot of biomass out. Yeah, and I think since then, they've developed... Uh, 
much better equipment for doing that because they are areas now, Pete, I got to tell you, herbicide use, growth regulator use, mowing timing, some people burning, chemical thinning. They are some of the pound for pound more than some of the more managed areas. You you wouldn't believe the trouble we go to to make it look like we do we do nothing. Right. And and so I want to wrap up, but I want to give you a chance because I, I got to tell you, I know you said, well, I hope I remember, but you, you certainly have remembered. And I'm wondering, you know, sitting there by the shore, if you were a new faculty member, and I and I know you probably don't want to remember all that. What kinds of things would you pick up and work on now? Oh, boy, Frank. You know, I, it's one of my pet peeves is how molecular biology has found its way into turf management, all aspects of it, and not disregarding it as a very, you know, important technological advantage. But, you know, the guys that go out and get their knees muddied are fewer and fewer every year. Mm. And I would just encourage people who really want to pursue it at the academic level is to kind of keep, you know, at least half your hand in the very applied hands-on side and then go ahead and and do the more technical lab work, molecular or otherwise, on the other hand, but to, to keep a balance because it's the only way you can really relate people in the industry. And ultimately, you were able to do that by mentoring some uh, really bright folks. Yeah, I mean, you know, Henry Wetzel did, I guess, the second uh, molecular study ever done in the United States on turf. Ned Tisserat had done the first, right. and Henry went to K-State to study under Ned, and then later Kaminsky and others did some work as well. Emeritus Professor Peter Dernoden, recipient of the highest honors from our two most important associations in the golf industry, and made fellow of the important academic societies in our industry. These honors recognize Pete for a career filled with substantial contributions in research, extension, and university education. Pete's legacy are the students and graduate students that have gone on to shape the golf turf industry we have today. Frankly Speaking is brought to you by our friends at Dryject, the only machine that aerates top dresses and amends in one pass, and Intelligro, makers of Civitas, a fungicide that's so much more. Frankly Speaking is recorded and produced at Rep Studios in downtown Ithaca, New York by Nate Richardson. Big thanks to program manager Eleanor Geddes, marketing and business manager John Kiger, and executive producer Peter McCormick. 